Look, up on the slopes. What is that? Well, it looks like a pair of cross-country skiers going downhill. No, it must be some alpine skiers with broken bindings. Wait, on closer inspection, it's... Those Telly Guys. Hello and welcome to Those Telly Guys. My name is Morgan and I'm joined as ever by Rich. How are you, mate? Morgs, I am... Well, the recent news, which was quite surprising, that regional Victorians are now free again to prance around in the various snowy parts of Victoria. Not New South Wales, unfortunately. They're still locked down under their own state rules, but Victorian regional people can frolic if they want to. And I hope that you have been frolicking, Rich. I have. Please do tell. Do tell me of your frolicking. I've been frolicking on Bogong. I have squeezed in at least a day of backcountry skiing. Looking at the forecast and providing that we don't get locked down again, I'll be doing a bit more of that in the next week or so. So there might be a sign on the podcast saying gone skiing next week. I guess we'll see what happens, but (laughs) it was lovely up there. Great cover and great corn skiing. So very exciting. And I I feel bad. I feel like I'm rubbing a little bit, but I do feel for yourself and others in Melbourne too. And uh, I don't know, I've crossed my fingers, I've crossed my toes, I've, you know, I'm crossing just about everything I've got to pray for everyone else that lives in the CBD and in the surrounding areas of Melbourne that they can come up soon too. Uh, yes, but I'm sure we'll all just live vicariously through you and any other uh, telemarker or other type of skier or, or dare I say snowboarder that manages to get up into the backcountry or perhaps for a cheeky resort day even. And might I add, Rich, that photo that you posted to Instagram the other day, that just really got the juices flowing for me back here at home. I had to quickly um, you know, exit out of incognito mode and turn, turn off my laptop on seeing that. <laughs> Mr. Burgundy, you have a massive erection. <laughs> 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 oh wow <laughs> that was good it was, a, it was a good photo yeah i can uh thank mr dowie for snapping that happy pic oh, it's quite lovely. the photographer so lovely. and quite the skier too um so thank you mr dowie much appreciative of that but um before we get into today's episode we might just reach into the mailbag here and pull out something interesting morgan that uh yeah. someone said this to us you've got mail Yep. Yes. Oh, I was, I was waiting for you to pull it out. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Oh, sorry. I'll just, uh, <laughs> um, hang on. I'm just reaching. Uh, there it is. Yes. Yes. Would you like to enlighten us on what this might be? Ah, uh, yeah. So, um, well, you uh, alerted me to the fact that we'd received this email uh, from Martin and he did mention, I, I don't have the email in front of me. I'm not sure if you do at the moment, Rich, but um, he mentioned that he had uh, sold, because uh, I can't remember even which episode we were talking about this in, but I must have mentioned that I was skiing on some atomic congours or congours or whatever they were called, mm-hmm. hammerheads. And this obviously rung a bell for for Martin um, that he sold those skis to me. So isn't that that's awesome that um, Martin, fellow Telemark skier, uh, was listening in who did sell me those skis however many years ago it was, it was probably seven or eight years ago. Um, yes. And yeah, I am no longer in possession of those skis. I passed them on. I uh, passed them on to a fellow telemarker to to use. And um, yeah, so th- thanks, thanks, Martin. And yeah, shout out to you, mate. I hope you're out there, or I hope you still have been able to get out and tele ski um, when we aren't in lockdown, etc. Yes, yes. Thanks, Martin, for writing in. And um, 
and he also gave some kudos on the show and we appreciate that thanks very much we do like hearing that someone's listening and enjoying it so cheers but morgan what are we talking about today well today we're going to dive into a little bit of australian ski history australian alps this is your life did do a little bit of I suppose Australian alpine history probably about a month ago, didn't we? That was more sort of looking at, um, we we're talking about the huts and things, weren't we? And obviously you and I are both keenly uh, interested in, I guess, the history of all things Australian skiing because it's, you know, a little bit of a novelty, but it's also super interesting. Yes. I wanted to raise this topic because I've been I've been hearing things more, hearing things out there in the world, especially mm. on other various podcasts that Australia doesn't, really have a, a rich history of, of backcountry skiing and while i will admit the fact that backcountry skiing is definitely growing maybe even growing exponentially you could say there's definitely um, a fantastic history of backcountry skiing dating back to what i think i can find as as far as the late 1860s if i'm correct yes yeah, so are you talking about the Piandra snowshoe club Yes, the snowshoe club, which apparently was the the archaic term for ski back in the 1860s, a snowshoe. For those listening overseas, yes, we don't have. A, if you ever hear of an Australian snowshoe club, we're referring to skis. If we're talking about if we're talking about a snowshoe club, we're talking about a very old ski club. But anyway, so I think the story. I don't like this is this is one of those things that's up for debate and. You know, we are grabbing a bit of this info from Wikipedia, truth be told, um, which, uh, you know, think of that what you will. But I guess, you know, speaking from my own personal experiences, and I'm sure yours are very similar, Rich, other uh, other people that I've spoken to, it gets thrown around that this Kyandra Ski Club in Australia is the oldest ski club in the world. And also, according to Wikipedia, potentially the world's longest continually running ski club as well as the first of its kind. Yes, I definitely hear about this all the time and I haven't heard anyone actually contest this. So it's potentially true, but I guess a lot of people uh, may not even know about it. So, you know, that's uh, something we'll have to look into the future and possibly get someone on from the Kyandra Ski Club to enlighten us a little bit more. Hmm. But So where is Kyandra? It's obviously in New South Wales, for those that are unaware, in sort of up Parisha Valley there. Do you know where Kyandra is? It's apparently it used to be an old town, like a mining town or something. Yeah, so I can see that by car, and it would have been substantially longer back in the day, assuming in the late 1800s they were using horse and carts and you did talk about needing to pull over and refuel your horse and cart with carrots last episode, I believe. Morgan, you're visiting yep. the snowy areas and I imagine they would have had to do the same. But um, from Jindabyne to Kyandra, it's about an hour and a half um, heading north. It's right up there. It looks like it's probably a little bit lower, um, but would have got substantial amounts of snow back in the day. It's not too far from the Mount Selwyn um, resort, I can see. And I believe that, as you say, it was a mining town. So a lot of immigrants moved there, European heritage, and was one of the first places, known places in Australia where the Europeans influenced or at least started skiing in Australia. So that's quite interesting. And you can see that obviously caught on and there is something, I'm just looking in my Skiing the High Plains book and there's a section 
about the origins of skiing and there's a, there's a great little photo did put on the Instagram page a few well last year actually last season of a fella sitting down on a stick and, mm. and it says the Kyandra style now this might be um, a bit contentious because obviously people would have had to learn that style and it might have just been you know copied but you might have had a different name for such a style as well Morgan well, I thought it was uh, I'd heard it potentially referred to as shussing mm. um, but I, I could be thinking of something totally different there but that was that was uh, just on you mentioning Kyandra style I've just found this other thing so between the years 1861 and 1863 the Australian club members constructed and used a short broad ski which was specifically designed for downhill skiing and called the Kyandra kick-in referring ah. to kicking one's boot into the binding strap. So that's pretty cool. So maybe like, uh, you know, whenever people put on their downhill ski and just kick their kick their boot in, that's the old Kyandra kick in. There you go. I like so that. A few things coming out of Kyandra. Yeah. Um, obviously a great skiing style that has been heavily modified since those days and a yes. fantastic ski. And I have read that, yeah, just making your own skis was quite big in those times and especially out of trees like ash because it was obviously plentiful and nice and straight that they would um yeah carve their own skis out and then and then heat them up by steaming the wood and and bending them and then just hammering on an old pair of leather boots in some scenarios so just hammering down the the toe of the boot and then having a free heel skill very archaic but um it seems to have done the job and got people out there which is the important thing very good all right um let's talk about some other so that, that's obviously a cool bit of info, but they they were sort of, I mean, one can only imagine, and uh, please write in if you do have any insight or, um, you know, cool info on the Kyandra Ski Club. And, you know, like you, like you said off air before, Rich, it would be cool to maybe catch up with someone that's been associated with them um, throughout their history uh, to come on the show and talk about it a bit. But I'm assuming that they, you know, did a lot of inbound skiing because it seems from what I can read, they did a lot of, you know, ski races and things like that, sort of downhill ski races. But let's let's dive into a bit of the, um, you know, the backcountry history of skiing in Australia. And obviously uh, in that other episode where we spoke about the mountain huts here in Victoria, Cleve Cole Hut and Michelle Hut and Summit Hut, um, those sorts of things around Bogong, um, they've obviously been there for a long time and they've been utilised by people that uh, travelled up there to go backcountry skiing. So uh, you and I have both done a little bit of digging uh, earlier this afternoon and, and found out uh, some information on some cool trips. Maybe should you kick us off with maybe the story of Cleve Cole, Rich? Yeah, so Cleve Cole was pretty active back in the day, getting out and about and often came up skiing onto Mount Bogong, one of his favourite places, and was a big fan of the idea of getting from one side of the High Plains to the other, whether it be from Mount Hotham to Mount Bogong or vice versa. And I believe he was an active businessman, but he was obviously one of the, the people back in the day that pushed to do these trips. And they were doing them at a time when no one else had done them. So this was the early 30s. And obviously, people had been up Bogong in summer, but winter was quite mysterious and climbing up the highest mountain in Victoria back then was a very big deal 
and only a handful of people have done it and, and cleave coal was one of them. Now, this isn't about the first attempt of summiting Mount Bogong in winter. I believe that was done by a Mr. Jack Tullow and his party of Tom Thornburn, Cyril Stafford, and that was done in 1927. This is about Cleve Cole's unfortunate last trip up the famous Mount Bogong summit, and it kind of reflects the times of when people were really starting to get into it and trying to make these achievements that no one else had never done before. And this scenario, this trip is kind of about how Cleve Cole's unfortunate demise led to the creation of the Cleve Cole hut, which now sits proudly over as a refuge for many backcountry skiers looking to ski the various lines especially in spring, which I shall be doing soon. And Cleve Cole and his entourage were no different. They loved getting up there and skiing as much as they could and were the early pioneers, if you like, of scoping out the, the mountain. Now, just a little bit of information about Cleve Cole, and I'm reading this from the Skiing the High Plains book, which is a fantastic piece of history that you should definitely hold on to if you've got it at home. They're like hen's teeth. Very hard to find, and it was compiled by a Mr. Harry Stevenson, who's done an absolute ripper job of putting together many short story accounts and actually written accounts from the various pioneers, if you like, that were heading up onto the mountain. So this is what's written about Cleve Cole. In the golden years of his early 30s, when much of the Victorian snow country was undeveloped and only partly explored, commenced skiing and quickly acquired an enthusiasm for ski touring that was not always matched by the physical fitness and skiing ability necessary for some of these aspirations. He visited Europe on two occasions, skied in New Zealand and on most of Victoria's snowfields. He sought to be a new trailblazer and was amongst the earliest to visit some of the more remote regions. However, on at least four occasions, his trips were horseback rides to the snow line or beyond, accompanied by a cattleman companion from where he would ski the short distance to his objective. He was a bit of a loner apparently and his companions were whoever happened to be available at the time. Cleve grew up in the Boy Scout movement and predictably became Commissioner for Lone Scouts, a section of the movement which encourages boys in isolated districts to participate in scouting activities. There you go. Cleve preached the doctrine of safety first and was the author of several articles on safety precautions which appeared in skiing and walking journals. He invariably carried compass, barometer, maps, alpine tent, stormproof clothing, a margin of food for emergencies and standard camping equipment of the best quality obtainable. His enthusiasm, however, led him to situations where he skied in remote areas alone and advanced in weather conditions which might have daunted a more experienced, if less enthusiastic, skier. This, then, was the man of adventurous spirit and high ambition who set out from Hotham on Wednesday the 5th, 1936, and what was fated to be his last trip. And now I shall read the rest of this story with some storybook music and sound effects to really get the listener in the moment. And I shall even put on a bit of a reading voice. Cleve Cole had reached Hotham Heights Chalet after a successful crossing of the Dargo High Plains, accompanied by mountain cattleman Jack Treasure. That trip, however, was not without incidents. During one night spent in Gal's hut, 
Jack left his boots close to the open fire, and during the night, a log rolled out and burnt the side of one of his boots. Bye, Cracky, my boot. It was a mishap that prevented Jack Treasure from accompanying Cleve Cole across the Bogong High Plains and up to Mount Bogong. Questioned about the trip recently, Jack said that had he accompanied the party, he would have got them down off the mountain to shelter below the snow line. There is no way, he said, that I would have stayed for days in a hole in the snow. Cleve Cole, accountably, was wearing new ski boots when crossing the Dargos and had raised a severe blister on one of his heels. This considerably slowed the party, and there was indications that Cleve was not in the best physical condition, causing the party to travel slowly. At one point, recalls Jack, Cleve paused and removed his skis, laying them down on the snow when one slid away downhill, and I went after it and brought it back. Cleve was to repeat this elementary error on Bogong, and on this occasion, the ski was lost. Surely, not the practice of a master of his craft. Cleve was joined at Hotham Heights by Mick Hull and Howard Mitchell. Mick, an experienced skier, was treasurer of the ski club of Victoria, and his name appeared regularly among the top runners in the club's racing championships. Howard Mitchell, a South Australian, was not so well known on the Victorian snowfields. But as events proved, he was the strongest and the fittest of the party. The three, who individually had earlier sent food supplies to Mount Hotham, Fitzgerald Hut and Madison's Hut, convinced the idea of a trip across the Bogong High Plains, an ascent from the Big River to Madison's Hut, and thence over the summit to Mount Bogong to Staircase Spur and on to Tawonga, a route which was known and had been travelled in its entirety on previous occasions by Cleve Cole himself. All seemed fit and well equipped with standard and emergency gear when they left Mount Hotham at midday on August 5th, carrying two and a half days food. Fitzgerald Hut, an additional food supply, was reached in one and a half days, after they experienced relatively poor weather conditions. On the 7th of August, they left Fitzgerald Hut in fine weather, carrying food for three days. Fog closed in on the party near Mount Nels, lifted briefly, and descended again before they reached Big River at 3pm. They camped here for the night. The party was fit, on schedule, and with two days food supply in hand, had a short day's climb ahead to reach Madison's Hut on Saturday the 8th of August. They left Big River in good condition, faced with a climb of 3,500 feet. As they climbed, the weather gradually deteriorated, and they became enshrouded in dense fog at the western end of the plateau, which leads to the summit camp. Progress had been satisfactory, and climbing was almost completed after five hours' travel. However, poor visibility, a strong wind, and driving snow made conditions and route-finding difficult. In icy conditions, Cleve removed his skis, dropped one, and it slid away down a steep slope and was lost. Unable to find the summit can, they decided on the safest option open to them. They attempted to return to Big River, a sheltered, timbered location below the snow line. The dense fog defeated them. Every spur they attempted ended in an impossibly steep drop. At 5pm, they wisely halted and scooped out a dugout in which to shelter for the night. The dugout was four feet wide, long enough to lie down, and had a roof constructed with a frame of sticks and skins, over which was spread a tent with snow over it. Mick's hand became numb and powerless during his operation, and they remained in this condition for the remainder of the trip. Cleve was extremely tired, 
and Howard was of the strongest of the three. They prepared hot drinks for the evening and changed into dry clothing and sheltered down for a cold, frosty night. On Sunday, August 9th, Howard and Cleve searched for the summit camp, but appalling conditions defeated them. After a discussion, they decided to stay put, as the prevailing weather had defeated their attempts to return to Big River or reach the summit. They scarcely had any other option. They calculated that they had food and sufficient fuel for one and a half days. On Monday, August 10th, Howard and Cleve again searched for the camp but driving snow, strong wind, and heavy mist not only hindered their search, but made them apprehensive of finding their way back to the dugout, and after two and a half hours, they abandoned their attempt. Mick, whose hands and feet were frostbitten, had again remained in the shelter, and by now their sleeping bags were saturated. During Thursday, August 11th, they all remained in the shelter, and with food almost exhausted, they wrote farewell letters to their friends. On Wednesday, August 12th, a decision was reached to make a do-or-die dash for the summit. Sleeping bags, saturated and useless, skis, walking was preferable, and other equipment deemed unnecessary were all abandoned, and carrying two compasses, maps, cameras, and little else, they left the dugout and set out to head home. They believed they were on the western side of the can, and the southern side of the mountain. An easterly course should take them to the can, and if this was missed... The course should take them in a further two miles to Camp Valley and to Madison's hut. When they reached the top of the ridge, they had to contend with strong wind, falling snow, and dense fog allowing a visibility of only 20 yards. Linking arms and checking compass direction every 25 yards, they proceeded about a mile and a half and then walked right to the summit can. They were jubilant and halted for a brief rest. The staircase spur led to Bivouac Hut, one and a half miles away, with its promise of food, warmth, rest, and safety. Cleve had traversed the spur on numerous occasions, and he had led the party from the summit. Their route, to avoid dangerously steep slopes to the north of the can, was plotted as 100 yards east, 100 yards northeast, and then 100 yards north, to bring them onto the head of Staircase Spur. In icy conditions, it was necessary to kick steps. The course was set by compass, but after several attempts ended in steep, rocky drops, they decided to return to the summit can and drop down a gully, which they thought led them down to Mountain Creek and in due course into Tawonga. Pushing the boundaries there. I'm just sort of curious. I guess we'll just have to sort of hypothesize here, but... So the direction, because like they've obviously erected Cleve Cole Hut as a memorial, like it's called Cleve Cole Memorial Hut. I think it, you know, is the official name or whatever. But um, you know, so you said they sort of started heading down toward the south, which, like you say, sort of put them near the headwaters of the Big River. But uh, they, so they didn't quite go back down past where Madison's Hut is and where Cleve Cole Hut is now they sort of went a bit more to the south of that didn't they so i was just kind of wondering is is there any particular significance for cleave Colhart being where it is other than just the fact that it's a fairly sort of protected space and it's a really nice place for a hut yes it appears so morgan um maybe i'll just finish off the story here and we can we can hear the account from the book here so cue the music i'll get into the <coughs> story voice once again Here we go. 
The ridge they followed back toward the summit swung into another spur, and a descent was made into a gully where soft snow was encountered. This, said Nick, ended hours of step kicking. So, their unsuccessful effort to reach Staircase Spur from the summit, following a 300-yard plotted course, and then returning towards the summit, had cost them hours. They linked arms, descended 500 feet rapidly, and then traversed with the hill on their left, bringing them to what they believed should have been Staircase Spur. The wind was unbearable, and as they continued, they realized they were not on Staircase Spur. They continued on through darkness, meeting small streams, walked out of the snow and reached a large stream. Finally, a sizable tributary stream bared their path into the darkness, where they stopped at 2am. For a party who must have been in poor shape at the beginning of the day, after having battled against tremendous odds since leaving the big river on the morning of the 8th of August, four days and nights ago, this incredibly long journey, lasting through the night to 2am, must have taxed on their endurance to the very limit. On Thursday, August 13th, after a few hours sleep, they continued down the valley, and by 5pm had covered possibly 10 miles. For some time, the general direction had been easterly, and they were now convinced that they were in the Big River Valley, and not Mountain Creek, as they had hoped. During the day, Cleve had trouble with his eyes, and Mick wrenched his left ankle. They sheltered for the night with what comfort a hollow log and overhanging tree provided. Next day, they continued and made reasonable progress. Cleve had one bad fall which slowed the party greatly. Then after he fell again, the party camped, again finding such comfort as they could in a hollow log. They were, of course, completely without food, and with matches sodden, unable to light a fire. Next day, Saturday 15th August, they made very slow progress for one and a half hours, and then after a discussion between Mick and Howard, it was decided that Howard should go on alone to seek help. Mick and Cleve made camp soon after Howard left, Mick making Cleve as comfortable as possible. They remained at the camp that night and all through Sunday. Then, at 7.30 on Monday morning, they heard the welcome calls of a rescue party. Howard, after leaving them on Saturday morning, had travelled some 20 miles down the valley to reach the home of Mr. Batty, a cattleman of Glen Valley, on Monday morning, August 17th. A rescue party consisting of Batty brothers, mine workers from the Maud and Yellow Girl, and others quickly set out to bring Cleve and Mick into safety. It was typical of the rescuers that the foremost waited only long enough to don overcoats and collect some food before setting off on a mission that they knew would keep them out for one or possibly two nights. After spending Monday night without blankets around campfires, they reached the two skiers early on Tuesday morning, constructed makeshift shelters and commenced the journey back. They were soon joined by additional helpers, but it was still necessary to camp that night some 10 or 12 miles short of Glen Valley. Cleve's condition was causing alarm, but they had made him as comfortable as possible with blankets at a safe distance from the fire. Cleve's condition had deteriorated further by morning of Wednesday 19th August, and carrying in relays, the rescuers made the best time possible to the end of the road where transport was waiting to take Cleve to hospital. After a short stay at Mr. Bittner's guest house, where he received attention, Cleve was rushed to Omeo Hospital where, despite receiving massage and every possible attention, he died at 9pm. Mick's party brought him in later and he received attention for frostbite and exposure. 
He lost several toes, but otherwise made a complete recovery. Iron Man, Howard Mitchell, quickly recovered from his ordeal. Goodness me, that is a misadventure, if ever I heard one. Yes, quite the ordeal. And this is, of course, why the Cleve Cole Memorial Hut was built. And I believe that was completed in 1937. Okay, so pretty pretty swiftly afterwards, I guess. Yes. Years uh, after, yeah. Very swiftly. And I can see here the actual the original plans for Cleve Cole Hut, and there's some fantastic pictures of the, the masonry work being completed. And Mr. Malcolm McColl was the architect for Cleve Cole Hut, and it has stood the test of time throughout Still various friendly. fires. It's... Whoever, you know, if you have not been there, it's a lovely hut and it is, of course, home to the Bogong Ski Club, isn't it, Morgs? Yes, I thought you were going to say it's home to the many anti-kindness that like to nibble on your cheese in the middle of the night if you don't hang it in a sack from the ceiling. That's right. And they do, they (laughs) have expressed that they also like uh, nibbling into the side of a, a goon bag full of beautiful red wine. So. Uh, yes, we've all been there. So we've kind of looked at, not not to sort of, like, I mean, we could talk about Cleve Cole and Cleve Cole Hut for hours, but, you know, so we've sort of, that's, well, what are we looking at there? That was the 1930s. Yes. Uh, so I guess, yeah, I guess we should move move through the ages here. Do you have anything, because um, I've got some stuff here that's sort of, oh, I reckon I've got stuff from perhaps the 60s. Have you got anything from in between there um yeah there's various bits and pieces i should note that you know copart was built um in the late 1920s and that was specifically specifically for skiing that one and obviously they've been using cattlemen's huts such as kelly's and and Twonga huts for shelter in winter for skiing but you know people recreating in the mountains and uh, using their own steam as such it goes back way into the 20s at least on the high plains so there's quite a rich history there, but go on with your information there, Morgs. Yeah, so I, I had a bit of a bit of a look around, and I, found, I got this from the the Berkabina Ski Club uh, website. So obviously the Berkabina Ski Club from uh, from your your hometown, Mount Beauty, mm-hmm. Rich, yep. um, and yeah, so they actually have a bunch of yeah little write ups on the. Uh, were links on their page which were really interesting and have uh, some awesome information about what we're talking about here about people I guess pioneering and you know using the uh, Victorian Alps as a you know as a as a space for recreation and a space for backcountry skiing as far back as uh, the one that I'm looking at here the 1960s so this is uh, a write-up about Charlie Derrick who of course Derrick's hut is named after, and I believe uh, you were mentioning that that's another hut that's named uh, sort of in memoriam of uh, due to uh, another sort of tragic passing while out in the back country. So this is from 1964. So obviously there's a whole sort of society or community of people that, you know, love backcountry skiing. And and as you say, Rich, with the, you know, with the story of Cleve Cole in the in the 1930s and what their party was doing, because did you say they started at Hotham and they, or was it they started somewhere on the high plains and came across to Vogong? 
Yes, that's right. They started at Hotham and made their way over to Bogong. But Cleve Cole had actually gone across the Dargo High Plains that year too. But yeah, the crossing's always been a bit of a big deal. Yeah, well, so so to me, it sort of it seems like they had uh, the skiers of of yesteryear. They had this real obsession or uh, infatuation with doing these crossings of you know various you know point to point across the high plains, or you know you want to get from this mountain to this mountain. They were really they really it seemed to be a really big motiva- motivation for them, which um, which is pretty cool. So so Charlie Derrick he wanted to do the other direction. So he wanted to start at Mountain Creek, which is down. Uh, the base of Mount Bogong, and he wanted to get up and over Mount Bogong and um, across to Mount Hotham. And I guess just on that, I was going to I was going to talk about it when you were speaking about how uh, Cleve Cole's party dropped down um, Dwaynespur and then up Teesburg, crossing through the big river there. I don't know if uh, like I've been down there uh, once only, and that was in the summer months and. It's a pretty, it's a pretty deep section of river, and like, I mean, God, doing that in winter with with all your gear, and you'd, you know, unless you wanted to risk getting things wet, you'd probably like strip your pants off and wade through it. Like, it's pretty, it's a pretty big deal to be doing that crossing in winter. Oh, absolutely, yeah. They, they were saying that 1964 was not not a great uh, snow year in terms of the amount of snow received, and so uh, Charlie Derrick was associated with. The Wangaratta Ski Club, I believe. Well, I'm assuming WSC stands for Wangaratta Ski Club in this instance. So they wanted to go Mountain Creek to Mount Hotham, but there was these ideas uh, that were incepted by, I'm assuming, this club called the Straight Jackets. Now, I found this really <laughs> interesting, Rich. So the Straight Jackets, which is you know aptly named because I guess if you're in a straight jacket, you're you know, probably back in those days, they would have said you were mad. Um, and, you know, so I guess people were therefore mad for trying these challenges mm-hmm. um, as they were. So they had uh, the easiest one, easiest in inverted commas. Oh, yeah. So up and down Bogong was considered the easiest of the challenges and was named the bronze straight jacket. So I'm assuming you just go up from wherever, up from Mountain Creek and back down Mountain, uh, sorry, up Staircase Fur and then back down Staircase Fur. So that's the bronze straight jacket. Then you could do the silver jacket from Mountain Creek to Falls Creek. So up over Mount Bogong, down through the Big River and then out to Falls Creek. And then the golden jacket, you could do Mountain Creek to Hotham, which is what uh, Charlie Derrick (coughs) wanted to do by the looks. And then this one, I'm not sure if it's a typo, Rich, because this just absolutely blew my mind. The unlikely diamond jacket was, wait for it, from Bogong to Buller. And if you wanted... And if you wanted platinum studs on your unlikely diamond straight jacket, you had to make it there and back in a day. Wow. That's... Surely no one is wearing that jacket. (laughs) If... Please, if you've made it from <laughs> Bogong to Mount Buller and back in a day, let us know. Um, because, I mean, it just seems impossible to, to even get there in one day, let alone back again. Well, that's a, yeah, that's a huge distance. That's so far. And it's quite a lot of elevation. Yeah, I, I just don't, I don't see it as being possible. I mean, of course, it would be, geez, you know, even crossing from, Bogong to Mount Hotham 
is is quite a day out and and that takes some time it's god it doesn't have any information there about who may have potentially done it has it it's no names or anything no oh, yeah i i don't know maybe it's just one of those things that was just thrown in there as a you know a bit of a i don't know just dangle the carrot no one's ever really going to do this but next winter yeah <laughs> But yeah, anyway, so that's interesting, and there's a uh, there's a cool little photo in here as well of uh, I don't know it could be it doesn't doesn't have a caption, but it could be Charlie Derek, uh, and he's on his he's got his leather boots and his long socks and his long skis and his telemark bindings, and he's just out there uh, crushing it, you know, back back in the 1960s, and yeah, it's just awesome, and it's just some more evidence, Rich, of um, you know people getting out there and getting amongst backcountry skiing in Australia uh, through through the 20th century. Yeah, and even now the other things come to memory. It's, you know, Rover's Chalet. It was built in 1940, I believe. So, wow. yeah, so it's been there for a long time and people have been continually jettisoning out there on their, their telemark skis, whether they be handmade from ash or rented from a shop as they are these days especially mm. members of the, the Rovers Club. They've been heading out there for, for yonks and, and learning how to ski on their little rope toe there, which is which is quite unique. And I believe, is it the Wangaratta Ski Club has something pretty set up near Mount St. Bernard as well? Um, well, that's Mount St. Bernard on the way up to Mount Hotham. That's where their, like, headquarters is or whatever. I think they have, like, a little lodge there or they park some machinery there or something i don't know because i thought isn't it is it wangaratta ski club or maybe i'm getting them confused with bansdale ski club that have is it them who is it that has the exclusive rights to not exclusive but like the partial rights to johnson's hut oh that's the yeah the um gippsland ski that, club of Gipps- yeah that's yeah, yeah bansdale yeah yeah, yeah. But do Wang, don't Wangaratta control one of the huts as well? Yeah, well, I think it is the the one over near Mount Hotham. I'm pretty sure. Let's have a, a quick Google here. Well, while you're doing that, Rich, I'll talk a little bit more. A couple other interesting articles that I found as well from Birkenbeiner, Birkenbeiner Ski Club uh, was, yeah, once again, you have more people doing doing these crossings. People were having a crack in 1980. Wangaratta Ski Club members, John, Robin and Bill, wanted to do a 1980 Alpine Winter Crossing. Wow. Oh, they're talking about being on 210-centimetre long waxed skis, uh, starting at 4.30 a.m., running to stay upright up the staircase spur towards the summit of Mount Bogong. Apparently, they reached the summit going up staircase spur in an hour and 20 minutes. That is... A solid up staircase effort. in an hour and twenty. Apparently, back in the day, gee, they could move back in the day. Yeah, yeah. So it looks like they, yeah, sort of finished up near Mount Lot. Very cool. So nineteen eighty winter crossing, and then someone else has gone. Someone else has done an article about a nineteen eighty five high plains winter crossing. Um, yeah. So <clears throat> just you know, these are the these are the real badasses of you know Australian backcountry skiing, aren't yeah. they? Like, yeah, you know, we, you know, we. We love buying nice, shiny new gear in 2021. That really keeps us going, doesn't it? But when you see these photos of people just cruising around in like their long woolly socks and a top hat, 
woolly woolly jumpers and a top hat <laughs> and they're and they're running up Mount Bogong yeah. from Mountain Creek in an hour and yeah. twenty minutes. You're yeah. like, man. Yeah. yeah. Post haste now. Quickly. Up we go. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Bring the donkey. Yeah. yeah. So it says here about the Wangaratta Ski Club. In July and August of 1944, the club negotiated with the Lands Department and members debated the merits of sites for a hut on Mount St. Bernard or Mount Feathertop. Now, previous mm-hmm. to this, I believe that there had been ski carnivals held on Mount Feathertop. So it already, already was kind of an established area for skiing. But also the Mount Hotham area was kind of well known for that as well because in 1863, the Mount St. Bernard Hospice was built um, and it was quite well known for a lot of people to go up there and ski. Now, that was quite a lot lower than uh, where the current resort of Mount Hotham is. In 1945, the members chose the St. Bernard location, and in August of that year, the previously established hut trusters trustees selected the present site where it currently exists. You can kind of see it off the side of the road there and their little rope toe as well, which I don't know how much permanent snow they would get throughout the depths of winter these days, but back then it would have been would have been quite the thing. Yeah, it's it's funny, isn't it? I guess it's it's a, well, it is a little bit well, definitely more than a little bit concerning, you know. And I remember when we were, when we had uh, you know a good good friend and friend of the show Lucas uh, on the podcast last year, he was talking about um, what's the name of his little. The little ski place that they used to go to near Coriong, uh, that's sort of like near the border there. Selwyn, isn't it? Is that S- yeah, yeah Selwyn? Yeah. Must yeah, yeah. That, that must have been you know like that little the dirt road or whatever that they used to go up ski up towards Selwyn. You know, and he was saying you know having meters of snow, but now it just doesn't get that much. And you know, other evidence like um, you know the fact that they tried to start skiing on Mount uh, Buffalo before. A lot of these other places and, you know, Kyandra even, you know, having a ski club there where, you know, it's probably not your prime location these days. It's kind of like, wow, like maybe there did used to be really a lot more snow, a lot lower down 50, 60 years ago kind of thing. The more established members of the skiing community here and definitely talk about, uh, we want to say here, uh, northeast Victoria, talk about bigger snow years Um just being a normal thing, you know, having, you know, massive years that would, you know, snow quite low down and the snow line would stay there for a long time, you know, then having average seasons is probably what we call a good season now. So definitely changed, unfortunately, and hopefully, I mean, we've talked about this before, but hopefully we can um, you know, rectify that somehow in the near future to keep our winters safe. Yes, keep them safe. Yeah. yeah. Have you have you got anything else, Rich? What are, you got any other cool cool info snippets of history um morgs there's heaps of stuff to talk about but i feel like that's probably enough this week and we we probably need to do some some note taking to condense these fantastic history books as they do go into (laughs) immense detail that it's probably too long for the show to read out completely but it's been another good episode to talk about australia's rich history of skiing and and really highlight that you know backcountry skiing is was quite well established in Australia, and it's probably one of the hidden secrets of the world, to be honest. As we as we know, it is becoming more more and more popular here in Australia, and that is that is a good thing. Um, uh, but yeah, let's let's not forget that people have been out there and getting amongst it, and um, 
yeah, showing showing people the ropes for a long time. Yes. And if you are getting into it these days, make sure you learn from someone and get all the right gear whenever, probably next season, when everyone's out of lockdown, hopefully, again. <laughs> yep, very good. Thanks again, Rich, and I'll see you next week. Thanks, Morgs. We'll catch you later. Bye. Those telly guys hope you have enjoyed this program. We'd love to hear from you. Please get in touch at thosetellyguys at gmail.com. If you enjoyed this show, please subscribe for more fun episodes. Otherwise, you can find us on Instagram. Thank you. (laughs) 